tied an old cloth around her mouth so that her words could not be heard. I am proud that she never ceased to struggle, that never once, not for one second, despite the ingratiating speech she had made, did she accept her fate. She did not give up trying to loosen the twine around her ankles or the ropes around her wrists so that she could get away from them or stop trying to curse her father so that he would feel the weight of her contempt. No one is willing now to repeat the words she spoke in the moments before they muffled her voice, but I know what those words were. I taught them to her. They were words I made up to shrivel her father and his followers with their foolish aims. They were words that announced what would happen to him and those around him once the news spread of how they dragged our daughter, the proud and beautiful Iphigenia, to that place, how they pulled her through the dust to sacrifice her so they might prevail in their war. In that last second, as she lived, I am told she screamed aloud so that her voice pierced the hearts of those who heard her. Her screams, as they murdered her, were replaced by silence and by scheming when Agamemnon, her father, returned, and I fooled him into thinking that I would not retaliate. I waited and I watched for signs and smiled and opened my arms to him, and I had a table here prepared with food. Food for the fool. I was wearing the special scent that excited him. Scent for the fool. I was ready, as he was not, the hero home in glorious victory, the blood of his daughter on his hands. But his hands washed now as though free of all stain, his hands white, his arms outstretched to embrace his friends, his face all smiles, the great soldier who would soon, he believed, hold up a cup in celebration and put rich food into his mouth, his gaping mouth, relieved that he was home. I saw his hands clench in sudden pain, clench in the grim, shocked knowledge that at last it had come to him, and in his own palace, and in the slack time when he was sure he would enjoy the old stone bath and the ease to be found there. That was what inspired him to go on, he said, the thought that this was waiting for him, healing water and spices and soft, clean clothes and familiar air and sounds. He was like a lion as he laid his muzzle down, his roaring all done, his body limp, and all thought of danger far from his mind. I smiled and said that yes, I too had thought of the welcome I would make for him. He had filled my waking life and my dreams, I told him. I had dreamt of him rising all cleansed from the perfumed water of the bath. I told him his bath was being prepared as the food was being cooked, as the table was being laid, and as his friends were gathering. And he must go there now, I said. He must go to the bath. He must bathe, bathe in the relief of being home. Yes, home. That is where the lion came. I knew what to do with a lion once he came home. I had spies to tell me when he would come back. 
Men lit each fire that gave the news to Father Hills where other men lit fires to alert me. It was the fire that brought the news, not the gods. Among the gods now, there is no one who offers me assistance or oversees my actions or knows my mind. There is no one among the gods to whom I appeal. I live alone in the shivering, solitary knowledge that the time of the gods has passed. I am praying to no gods. I am alone among those here because I do not pray and will not pray again. Instead, I will speak in ordinary whispers. I will speak in words that come from the world, and those words will be filled with regret for what has been lost. I will make sounds like prayers, but prayers that have no source and no destination, not even a human one, since my daughter is dead and cannot hear.